everyone. Welcome to the Two Real Cinema Club. My name's Andres Lorente. And I'm James Rosica. And uh, every episode on the Two Real Cinema Club, we watch two movies, a new movie and an old movie. And then we try to connect the dots um, a little bit like uh, imagine you had a copy of Empire and uh, you had a toddler who was scribbling really, really hard on the front until he penetrated all the way through the first few pages and managed to draw a line in between the cover story and the oldie at the back. That's that's very three dimensional. Like if it were just on the one page, it'd be two dimensional. I, I spent a lot of time this week trying to think up a, a good analogy for for joining the dots. Yeah, oh, brilliant, brilliant start. <laughs> I should have more excitement, Jimmy. Brilliant start. Oh yeah. <laughs> so uh, so this episode, we we uh, we have gone back to school, mm. uh, trying to fulfil our destiny from a previously abandoned uh, pod. So we have watched uh, My Old School, which fell off UK distribution last time round, and yeah. uh, we didn't get to see it. So now it's streaming. So we watched My Old School, and we're going to compare it to 1969 UK school classic Kez. Yeah, and I found I finally found um, My Old School on Hulu here in the States. So, yeah, mm. the audience, probably those who've listened, maybe knew that we were going to do this film, but it uh, took a while. I think we started talking about this in... August or September? It's been probably three months. Yeah, I think so, yeah. So finally, I don't think it ever really appeared in too many cinemas in the U.S., um, but it finally hit Hulu in the United States, so um, we were able to watch it. And then Kez, I finally found on Apple TV, which is not easy to use. It's not so easy to navigate, but uh, got a great copy of it, and it looked great. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, before we get too involved in the films, let's talk about social media. Social media. Social media and I go along together about as well as a fish and a cigarette, to be honest with you. It's, uh, <laughs> and that's that's like doubly bad because not only can you can't smoke a cigarette in the water and you also I think you probably would have difficulty smoking with gills. Gills, yeah, you need lungs. I think you need lungs. Yeah, you need lungs to destroy if you're going to smoke. We are on Twitter at Two Real Cinema Club at twitter.com, Instagram at Two Real Cinema Club at instagram.com. You can read our blog, which is a lot of great writing from Jimmy and me, misposting things occasionally at uh, (laughs) Two Real Cinema Club.com. Email us. I've been hearing from you, (laughs) Israeli porn bots. I read your (laughs) messages carefully. Um, You can even, that's the one I look at. Jimmy doesn't really look at the email so much. So uh, keep, um, I want to keep my relationship with the Israeli porn bots going. Two Real Cinema Club at gmail.com and tell your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts, and YouTube. And I always listen to these other podcasts, and they say that it does uh, does a great service to potential listeners and to us if you leave a favorable rating. I'm not going to say five-star rating, but a favorable rating really helps other people find it. There you go. You could leave us four and a half stars and then round it up oh, for the be- sake of uh, yeah, statistical significance. Jimmy, take us back to school. My well, old we're going, school. We are going back to school. This is—I mean, it's—it's—it's it's, um, it's been great watching the two films this week for me because yeah. this has been, you know, a lot of vivid flashbacks to my school days. Yeah, I'm sure. So, my old school, um, new film released this year. It's a documentary directed by John M. McLeod, um, who uh, who was originally a BBC Scotland reporter ah. before moving behind the camera. Um, although it's a documentary, it's a mixture of styles. It uses some um, reconstruction. Alan Cumming sort of stands in. He lip syncs yeah. over an interview with the real protagonist, um, Brandon Lee or Brian McKinnon, that the documentary is about. 
And then um, there are some cameos from some other Scottish actors um, playing uh, the parts of teachers or school children. Um, and then there are also interviews um, with uh, real people who were children at the time of the incidents uh, in the film. And then also there's kind of animations mm -hmm. um, to reconstruct uh, the events that happened. Uh, so it's kind of this very sort of simple um, flash style animations. So it's a kind of a mixture of these different uh, media that tell a story um, about uh, school life in 1994. So um, the film is about the events at Bearsden Academy in Glasgow, um, which is the posh part of Glasgow in Scotland. Um, and in 1994, um, uh, a new boy arrived at the school and uh, talking to... Uh, the other adults who were kids in the class at the time, uh, they all say the same thing, which is as soon as this boy turned up, the first thing they thought was, what's a teacher doing in school uniform? Um, so this unusual boy called Brandon Lee turns up. Um, he's uh, got this complicated history. He's come from Canada. His mother was an opera singer who died in a car accident. His father is an academic down in London. Um, he's come uh, to live with his grandmother in Glasgow, and uh, go to school at Bearsden Academy, and he's hoping to go to medical school. Um, you know, he's a bit unusual looking. Um, he puts it down to to burns and damage from the car accident that he was involved in, where his mother died. Um, and uh, after not too long, he settles into the school. Kids accept him, um, and he turns out to be quite bright. Uh, you know, he seems to know all the answers at school. He's a favourite with the teachers. Um, he seems to be miles ahead of most of the other kids. Um, but things uh, take a bit of a turn when uh, some of the other children notice him out in out of school driving a car. And uh, in the UK, you can't get a license until you're 17. But this boy, Brandon Lee, was only 16. Now, he he um, gives the excuse, oh, you get a license much earlier in Canada. Which is, it's, which is a little bit like that excuse, yeah, I have a girlfriend in Canada, you haven't met her, she goes to another school. <laughs> Canada is like the universal stand-in for, for somewhere which is you know, remote but plausible. Yeah, it's a great, great place for a parallel life, I think. But uh, kind of the, 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 uh, the story around it becomes kind of fishier and stranger and stranger and fishier until eventually he goes on holiday with some other girls from school to Tenerife um, this is a, a, a Spanish island. Uh, there's a bit of a local fracas. Uh, the police pick him up and they find that Brandon Lee, teenage schoolboy, has two passports. In one of them, he is 16 years old. And in the other passport, he is 31. And, and the story emerges that uh, Brandon Lee is yeah, an adult who's an imposter. He's pretending to be a, a teenager um, so he can go back to school and try and press reset on his life. Um, you know, it's a fun revelation, although I think if you know anything at all about the movie before you've gone in and bought your ticket, then you kind of, you know what this revelation is. But it comes about halfway through the film. But brilliantly, there's more fun stuff to reveal, because mm -hmm. not only does it turn out that he's uh, you know, an imposter, not really a teenager at all, not only has he gone back to school, but he has gone back to the same school that he originally went to 15 years previously. He's being taught by many of the same teachers. Did anyone recognize him? <laughs> um, the, the woman that he's claiming was his grandmother is actually his mother. 
And uh, not only does he plan to go to medical school, but he's already been to medical school and then got thrown out after the first year. The whole uh, movie is based around uh, an in-depth interview with Brandon Lee or Brian McKinnon, as it turns out his real name uh, is. Um, but he doesn't appear in the film giving the interview. So he's um, frightened about uh, letting people see his face now. So his whole interview is lip synced by Alan Cumming. And for, you know, for the most part, it's successful. And occasionally it looks a little bit flaky. Yeah. But a lot of the time, you know, I was able to forget that Alan Cumming was lip syncing and it just really felt like the character talking straight to me. Yeah. Um, and the further you go into the film, the more kind of deranged and delusional uh, Brandon appears. I have mesmerism, he tells the camera. Mm. Um, he claims that he took his yeah. name from from Beverly Hills 90210, claims that his mother was never in on it, but, you know, she must have been in on it. Um, and uh, best of all, he claims that he is still, even now, I, I'm guessing in his 50s, um, hoping to apply to some medical school somewhere in the... Uh, in, 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 in continental Europe, hoping to get back on the course and fulfil his destiny to become a doctor. Now... I thought this was very entertaining. I was slightly aware of this story. Um, I had a vague memory of it being a very big thing in the British papers in the mid 90s. Were you aware of the story at all? No, no, didn't know. I, I didn't even know it was a documentary when we started talking about it. Ah. I think the first the first trailers I thought I did not know as a documentary at all. And that's for for a variety of reasons, I think, because of the animation and Alan Cumming sort of playing the protagonist so and i don't i don't recall hearing anything about it um here before that and you're right you know it sort of stretches back to he would have first been a, a student there in the 80s i guess mid 80s or something like that and then went back in the mid 90s even he first went to school in 1975 oh god he first went, <laughs> oh god the school. okay yeah so it stretches out over a long period of time and i never no never heard of it um, so for me, it was a complete new experience, and I think that helped. And we've just spoiled it for our listeners because if you do see it, and I, th I think you still should see it, but you've obviously got a little bit too much information at the moment, thanks to us. Maybe, maybe, maybe we don't deserve that four point five rating that we were talking about. Before. <laughs> Take it into a four point three, four point four five. <laughs> but I, I must, I, I watched this and I found it tremendously entertaining. Um, I think there are good and bad points and things that it does well and things that it does poorly. It's not mm. a long film, but I probably would have lost another 10 minutes. Yeah. I think it does very slightly sl slow down at about one third of the way in. I think they tend to tease out the revelations when you've read anything about the film. You know, the, the big revelation is something that you're already anticipating. Yeah. Um, the thing I most enjoyed about it, I think, is the sheer Rashomon aspect of the story. It's yes. a kind of multiple POV story. Mm. So we do get... Brandon or Brian's uh, opinion and his view of the story. But we also get the story told from the point of view of all the kids who are also in the class with him, who are now adults. Um, and you know, what's fascinating is that they remember it not only differently to the way that he remembers it, they also remember it differently to the way that it turns out to have happened when we eventually get um, archive footage. That's right. So he's um, he remembers... Um, going to uh, Tenerife and being arrested by the police. But actually, you know, that never really quite happened. And I think there were kids who were sort of aware that he was you know, pulling a fast one, but kind of letting him get away with it, almost like it was a, sort of a double-think thing. Um, there's a big kind of pivotal um, 
point in the film where uh, the young Brandon, the old Brian, is cast as the lead in South Pacific in a school production. And the way that the, the his contemporaries, the children, remember that musical is very different to the way that it actually plays out when you see the proper VHS video cassette version that was recorded by the school. And um, if nothing else, I think this is a fascinating reflection of the way that memory is very slippery. The thing it made me think of uh, was Lost Highway, the uh, David Lynch film. Have you yeah, seen that? I haven't, no. So uh, Bill Pullman plays uh, the lead character in that film. Um, and uh, there's, this, there's lots of quotable lines in the film, but the one that I'm really reminded of is... Um, they have a break in at their house and somebody uh, somebody keeps leaving spooky videotapes on their door and the police come around to investigate and they ask uh, Bill Pullman, well, do you have a do you have a video camera? And uh, uh, I think it's Patricia. No, Rosanna Arquette, Patricia Arquette. One of the Arquette sisters okay. is his wife. And she says, oh, no, no, we, we don't. We, he, he won't allow a video camera in the house. And the police say, well, why won't you have a video camera? And Bill Pullman tells them, I prefer to remember things in my own way not necessarily the way they actually happen. Yeah. And that absolutely is this film. That's kind of that's kind of a reflection on um what cinema does as a whole. Yeah. Um and it's certainly, you know, an important part of the story here and the the pleasure that you get I think from uh, revisiting these memories and finding that they're different. Yeah. Well, and and then memory itself is tenuous enough and uh debatable for many. Um but when you introduce falsehoods to that collective memory, it becomes kind of interesting. And that's exactly what happens here is because he's he's sort of changing his past, of course, and he's he's still telling this story, isn't he, even though he's in his 50s. But these certain falsehoods that, that uh, people have to grab onto as well. So it, it really is a story about what to believe. And that, I think that's what makes it a good documentary in the sense that you're never entirely sure what's going on. And even though you get the big reveal halfway through, there's all this other information to come. So... I think it works, and I think you're right. It is sort of a um, meditation on memory. I was a bit disappointed by the quality of the animation in the film. I think mm. if there's anything that lets it down, clearly it's been made on a budget. Yeah, you know they didn't have a great deal of money. Um, the animation to me feels you know only one step up from using little cardboard cutouts and yeah. bits of paper wibbling around on a, on a screen. Um, I, well, I, I also I do take it into the context of the 90s. So it looks a little bit like Simpsons, earlier Simpsons or okay. South Park. So I think it almost makes sense that that sort of rationalizes it. It's not great animation, but I think it would have been a much more expensive film if they'd really focused on the animation. And I think I think it, it's serviceable. It's certainly serviceable because it really it helps to tell the story. And I thought it was quite inventive to do it that way. Because that that piece of video that you mentioned of of uh, Brandon O'Brien performing in South Pacific, they make a note that that's the only sort of video and maybe even the only real photographic em, um, image or images of that time when he was pulling off this little trick. I did. I did have some you know really strong flashbacks when there's, there's a very sweet section of the film right at the end. We've been watching lots of interviews with sort of adults in their forties. Or kind yeah. of you know, late 30s, yeah, early 40s, something yeah. like that, who were the contemporaries of Brandon at the time. Yeah. And then at the very end of the movie, you get a whole bunch of little photographs of what they looked like when they were 16 or 17. And that gave me some really, really strong yeah. personal flashback vibes, actually, just with the, you know, the, the clothes and the hair and the background. And, you know, that was, um, yeah, that was, that was kind of a very nostalgic moment for me and very sweet, actually, to see, you know, these adults um, who were kind of, you know, 
snotty, scruffy kids who then you know turned out to be you know perfectly nice, interesting adults who yeah. achieved things with their lives. Yeah, and it's interesting how their lives were changed a little bit by him. Some of them got turned on to music that they wouldn't have heard otherwise because he was older, yeah. so he had the cassettes that they needed to hear in order to sort of grow musically. Um, he himself sort of changed because it sounded like he wasn't able to have friends when he was at Beerston the first time, but then um, when he goes back as a 32-year-old, it's kind of creepy, but he, he had friends in a way that he didn't have before. He he was sort of active in the school and the musical and other things in ways that he wasn't before. Um and there was this one interesting quote, I forget who said it, but um, someone said, he thinks he's the lead part in his own film, which he ultimately <laughs> is in this film by getting this documentary made. Um, so it was just, uh, I, and there was also one one of his best friends at that time, even though they were you know, 16 years apart in age or something, um, he said that Brandon really changed his life. Like, um, yeah. he, he's the one who went on to become a pharmacist. Um, yeah. And he said, you know, yeah, he, it was really weird what he did and, and somehow immoral, I guess. But, you know, if Brandon hadn't been in my life, I might not have passed classes. I might not have uh, uh, become who I am. So that was a really interesting take. And only, there's only really one character who I think had that opinion. But a lot of them seemed to be friendly with him, and they kind of liked him. And now he's one of these characters uh, by the end of the documentary. Maybe we'll talk about this a bit more. But he um, he's still in the town. He's still in that part of Glasgow yeah. at the library filling out his applications for medical school. You know, you get the sense that there's a mental illness story here, too, that he, they don't, you know, label him as being mentally ill or anything like that. I think the, the treatment of him is really fair. Um, but he's one of these characters who's still in their life, and I think – you get a lot of empathy for him, even though he's done this really weird thing. You feel like, okay, we know why he does it. That's what the last half of the film is sort of, um, you know, exploring why he wanted to make his father, his dead father, should be proud that he eventually got to medical school and his mother was really, you know, working almost to an unethical level to help him make that dream come true. So you end up with quite a bit of empathy for the character. Um, and I think that... And you see that, you know, he did some good. Yeah, absolutely. Did, yeah. A great, did a great job in South Pacific singing. You know, he was he stood out in that part. But he ended up as a 32-year-old kissing a 16-year-old girl <laughs> as part of the musical. Right? <laughs> and everyone's kind of looking at that video going, yeah. And then even she had remembered the kiss as being just a peck, a really quick thing. But it... Uh, it wasn't, yeah. It wasn't. And that, that you know, that's a real, that's this really major philosophical question right in the film. Um, that you know everyone pauses at for sure, and they'd all remembered it differently. And and according to Brandon, and you get this, I think, from the Alan Cumming character lip syncing, um, he refused to kiss at all in the rehearsals. And I think they all confirmed that. No one ever remembers any kisses in rehearsals, but I guess they had one performance, and that's when they kissed, and it was more than a peck. It's it kind of examines this sort of interesting phenomenon, which um, you've kind of observed before, which is that people. Can peak at different times in their lives. You know, I'm sure you know you yeah. may remember. You may also have encountered professionally. There are um, kids who've um, really impressed everyone when they were at school, and then kind of lost their way a little bit when they were adults. Yeah. Just as there were kids who seemed, you know, completely unable to get it together as as teenagers. Yeah. And then when you meet them again in their thirties, they're you know incredibly responsible and they've achieved an enormous amount. Mm -hmm. and it's this interesting idea of, you know, of when people peak, and you may not have very much choice in when that happens. That's right. Um, it and it does feel like in both iterations of his teenage life, Brian stroke Brandon, mm -hmm. um, 
achieved really highly in school. Yeah. Both times. It's like, you know, he pressed reset and kind of went back to the same school and did, you know, just as well. And, and um, you know, more or less managed to make it into medical school twice. Yeah. And there was something about taking this step into adulthood and independence that he wasn't quite able to to make. Yeah. So um, it's almost like he's like trapped in a time warp, isn't it? I think I presume his intention was to go back and try and right the wrongs and and uh, not make the same mistakes the second time around. But in fact, he goes back and he does exactly the same thing second yeah. time around. Yeah. Um, or at least, you know, his intention of launching his career and getting into medical school, all that works out the same way. The thing that changes is the friends that he made along the way, isn't it? It's that kind of storytelling cliche. But that's you know, actually kind of the thing that you take away from the, the film that about you know, what was important from those years, about you know, what a real achievement is. I was scratching my head trying to think, how would I express the theme of the movie to somebody? You know, and, it, and it does feel very much um, like the theme is you can't go home again. Um, and also this this notion that memory is slippery. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think it's you know, what they're ex ex exploring. But beyond that, there is also this notion that ambition Ambition may destroy you if it is unchecked. Um, his ambition, in a way, has kind of consumed his entire life. His, um, you know, his desire to be a doctor. And, buddy, I'll tell you now, it's overrated. But his, you know, his, his kind of tremendous desire to go to, to medical school and graduate and become a doctor has um, you know, kind of destroyed his life entirely. Or at least you know, his, his life hasn't turned out the way that it could if he diverted his attention to something else. Yeah, it's interesting to go to all that trouble to try and create the life of the future that you th thought you deserved, or thought you wanted, and then actually to have even less at the end of the process, I think. Yeah. Because it is quite sad by the end. You know, his mother does end up dying. He's sort of alone there. I think he's still in the house where he hosted the parties that he had with his second group of friends. Um, uh, and it hasn't changed much. Life hasn't changed much. And I think one thing that I would have loved to have seen is interviews, if they had them, with with people from the first go around in the nineteen seventies of school, because that might yeah. have, that, that's that's very obviously missing from this film. There's no one. There's some teachers who we had at that time who are still alive and still in the documentary, but there are no peers from that time. And that might say that he, boy, he really was easy to forget in the 1970s or he didn't have any friends at all or they couldn't contact anyone. But that would have been an interesting angle, I think. Yeah. And I suppose the film is uh, informed by the fact that the director was one of the kids he was at school with. Yeah. And that's a great reveal, actually, quite late on yeah. in the film. I like that as just a sort of minor reveal because he's been on camera talking alongside another friend of the time. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, that's the director. And then I thought for a moment, I was trying to do some research, I, he has a similar, if not, I thought he had the same last name as the Batman, who was the, I don't know, the headmaster of the school or something yes, like that. Yes, he does, and yeah. And I thought they might be related, but I don't think, I think I got the name. I think so, but, yeah. But he was definitely there. So the director himself is in the film, and, you know, he contributes quite a lot um, before you even realize he's the director. There's a, you know, a lot of pathos in this film, and it tells a you know, sophisticated story with a lot of different strands. I think I was very yeah. impressed by it. I, yeah, I but, liked it a lot. I thought it was great. I don't know whether it would have received the, you know, the kind of audience that it deserves. Um, well, I think you know, it's a great film to stream. It's, it's a documentary, so I'm not surprised that it uh, ended up going sort of to Hulu after a very modest uh, run in the theaters here. 
Um, I think you're right about the length. You know, you don't expect documentaries to go, unless it's a series of, you know, installments and whatnot, it's, it, you don't expect them to go more than an hour and a half or something like that. So it, it's pretty tight at an hour and a half. It's, it's still really watchable at one hour and 41 minutes or whatever it is, but um, it could be a little shorter. But it's, it's a great example of some of these, these um, most recent documentaries that might use animation. We saw Flea. Do you remember that? Um, yeah. In, I think it was last spring we watched that together where it really uses uh, animation. And that's actually, um, there's no lip syncing necessary there um, because it's actually the filmmakers are, are filming people and then turning them into an animation directly. Yeah, this is right. a little yeah, different style. And I, I, as I said before, I think this style does work well. It takes um, what could have been a really probably a poorly told story and really sterile um, environment. It, it does spice it up with the animation I thought was great. Alan Cumming, it does work, the the lip syncing. I noticed that you very rarely get a sort of a direct address to the camera more than about three or four seconds. They'll cut yeah. to these side angles of his um, his speaking just to, to sync up the lips with um, the audio. Um, but it does work pretty well. I think actually it, this is not like a best actor performance or anything like that, but it's quite an achievement to be able to... I don't know, lip sync, it's probably like 20, 20, 25 minutes of, uh, of his dialogue over the course of the film um, and saying it directly to camera. And I think so, he's also sort of voiceovering sometimes. And then he's also, his voice gets animated, if you will, uh, yeah. as well. So it's, it, it's, the film's working on a bunch of different levels. And it's really, it's just not a dry documentary. It is a great story. And it's presented as just on that line of fiction, in part because he's told falsehoods, because he's lived this fake life, it is somewhat fiction. So it, it comes across as a really interesting documentary, in my opinion. And it's all sweeter because in a way, you know, the stakes are the stakes are high and low at the same time, aren't they? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's some question about whether whether Brian stroke Brandon has even broken the law. Yeah. Um, cause it's like, yeah, I think it's kind of it's a little bit slippery, this notion of whether, well, actually, is it illegal or is it just, you know, is it just a rather in poor taste? You know, and there is an element of fraud, but is that actually, you know, specifically a punishable offence? Yep. Um, and you do come away, yeah, with kind of some sympathy. And it's, you know, it's almost a little bit of a sort of a, a, a wry, a shrug and a smile and a nod and a kind of, isn't that strange? Yeah. Uh, rather than it being, you know, a, a, a damning outrage that goes to the very heights of the Department of Education. Yeah, I think it's as uh, it's, if he only harms himself. He doesn't defraud anyone else. It's just that this, he does this stupid thing and eventually gets caught and... That's it. No harm, no foul, we sometimes say. <laughs> um, speaking of which, yeah. uh, much though I loved this film, uh -oh. I am still going to put in a call to the cliches. Oh. Wow. So disappointing, I know. But uh, for all its innovation mm -hmm. and uh, its surprise and its gentleness, yeah. um, there's a, a, a strangely kind of... Uh, out of tune note about 10 minutes into the film where they have this like short little skit about one of the teachers being sexy and it's like you know suddenly suddenly the film takes like a 15 second veer into van halen's hot for teacher when, when the rest of the film <laughs> is um it's kind of you know being just like a little bit more sort of sensible and liberal yes um and yeah and there's this kind of so there's this there's like a, a little erection gag in the, you know, in the animation <laughs> <laughs> and i really thought well, wait, wait a second that doesn't match up to the rest of the film. Why is that included? I'm I'm having a little deja vu because didn't we have Hot for Teacher within the last two or three podcasts? <laughs> is that, is this turning out to be my favorite song? I think, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. I I'm gonna 
I'm going to make a second call to the Cliché Squad because, uh, yeah, yeah. And I do that because I think the Cliché Squad does great work. I want to thank them for their service. <laughs> um, and I don't know that that's – a, that's a small cliché, I think. So <laughs> we all had the hot for teacher thing. So I think it's, it's actually very honest, I believe. Um, so I, I think the Cliché Squad's done great work. I don't want to trouble them much with this film because I thought it was pretty – it was surprisingly free of cliché. And maybe, maybe real life is less – cliched than than films make it. I think that might be part yeah. of the, the issue here. Um, but I, we did, I, God, I'm trying to think what film it was, but this came up because you gave it a different name. You didn't call it Hot for Teacher last time. We'll have to go oh, back into the records okay. here. Yeah, rewind. Yeah. <laughs> we'll rewind somehow. Uh, but this is the, the second time it's come up, so I, I mean, that's good proof for you that there is indeed a, a, an underlying cliche in this film and in other films. Might as well jump then, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, nice. <laughs> um, there's another musical thing that really freaked me out a little bit. Um, oh. the, the closing credits, which you said are great because they show images of sort of live action images of the current day adults who were also shown as uh, te- teenagers when they were back at, uh, at school yeah. together. Um, it's all done to a song by Steely Dan called My Old School. Yeah. And it's sung by Lulu. <laughs> <laughs> who I think plays Mrs. Holmes, is that it? Mrs. Yeah, Holmes? something like that. Yeah, she plays like the elderly teacher. It's not a big, <laughs> she gets big billing, but it's not a really a large role or anything like that. But her voice is so strange. It sounds like a 12-year-old boy yelling. It's just, I mean, and Lulu's, Lulu's probably what, 70 by now? Yeah, she must 70s. be, yeah. Um, so it's it's a very, very rockin' version of the song, but she's sort of, it's, it's kind of like a teen ACDC singer or something like that, because it's really, her voice is not in great shape, but it did not sound like the Lulu of uh, To Sir With Love, for example. That's how I remember her. Now, I, I was going to ask you whether you were even aware of Lulu, but yes, okay, she, yeah. she, she will have come up with To Sir With, uh, to sir with Love. Yeah, and sings, sings beautifully in that film, and... You know, again, it's kind of a, it goes against expectations. It's nice to hear her singing, but when I saw that it was Lulu, I thought, "Wow, is it the same Lulu?" A great touch. I mean, obviously, he's a filmmaker who knows the to sort of love and knows how to you know nod nod the cap to the old earlier films, but it does not sound like Lulu. So if you're if you're expecting Lulu on those end credits, you're gonna get Lulu, but it's a different Lulu for sure. <laughs> Right, we need. We should have our lunchtime break now. Uh, I think yes. <laughs> we'll have a run around the playground, um, down to the cafeteria, and then, and then let's come back and, uh, and we'll return for afternoon lessons and we'll talk about kids. I hope you join us. So, Andres, it's that time of year again you know what time it is don't you time for the world cup no it's not it's not <laughs> oh, even no. time for the world cup it's the wrong no, time, the time of year time, i don't it's know it's the other time of no the other time of year it's that time of year when you're gathered around the christmas dinner table yeah and you realize that something is missing mm. something important something fundamental something that is as old as christmas probably older something that's been a part of christmas since the days of stonehenge and king henry the eighth when Charles Dickens and Shakespeare and Bing Crosby would gather around Nat King Cole's piano to sing Gregorian carols. Can you tell me what's missing? Do you know what's missing? Uh, stone soup, I think. That's what they're saying. <laughs> what's missing now is that you're not wearing a Christmas jumper. Oh. Ah, 
no one wants to be naked at the dinner table like that. Oh, Christmas <laughs> jumper. So this year, the Two Real Cinema Club has your back and your front and both <laughs> sleeves with our new seasonal favourite, the Two Real Cinema Club Christmas Jumper Collection. We have got bright, fun, durable jumpers made from the highest quality man-made fabrics featuring Christmassy designs from all your favourite Christmas-themed movies. You can choose from Alan Rickman falling out of the Nakatomi building at the end of Die Hard. Oh, good. Or a detailed full-colour reproduction of the microwave scene from Gremlins. Or a scene from Human Centipede, but with one of the characters wearing a Santa hat. Ooh. It's all your traditional family Christmas favourites. They're available in a range of sizes, meaning that there's one size and it fits no one. And what's more, <laughs> we can personalise your jumper with your name embroidered on the neckline, as long as your name is 36 medium. <laughs> no, nothing says festive like a two real jumper club jumper. Ho, ho. Brilliant. We have merch. What you're saying is we have merch. We have merch. <laughs> And we are back, and we're going to follow up on my old school with a school classic, kind of an old school classic, I guess, um, from 1969, uh, Kez, written and directed by Ken Loach, um, based on a book called A Kestrel for a Knave by Barry Hines, and he... Yeah, he and would, that, that book is yeah. like standard reading in British schools. Oh, I don't know it is. You've seen it, but no. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. So this is yeah, this is a book that like most British school children oh. would probably have read. So I was going to ask you if you'd read it, but clearly everyone has. Oh, I think right. everyone has, but me actually. I'm not sure. We definitely have a copy in the house. Oh. And my brother definitely read it. I don't think I ever did though. Oh, it's time. It's time. So yeah, it's, I, yeah. you know, I blame should. You're right. I'm normally good with the homework. Yeah, aren't I on these. I, I should have read the know. book. You're right. Things have, <gasps> yeah, things have changed quickly in your life. My God. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I was a promising student once, and yeah, now I've messed it up. In podcasting, a month ago, you read both uh, Full Metal Jacket <laughs> and uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, I believe. So, wow. Times have changed, um, but not so much in school, perhaps. I don't know. This is a great uh, little examination of uh, late 60s, I guess, uh, um, English schooling. Um, Barry Hines wrote this book, and I guess he had some part in adapting it, but Tony Garnett gets an adaptation um, credit yeah. on as well, and Ken Loach obviously worked on the script too. And it's you know it's one of these films where you wonder, to a certain extent, how much of the script was improvised as well, and how much knowing the way that mm, Ken Loach shoots his yeah. films, how much was uh, uh, sort of generated uh, from the actors themselves. Um, it takes place in a small town, northern England, mining country, and a school full of totally working class kids. Um, we see an image at the very beginning of two people, brothers, we will learn, sharing a twin bed. And I thought, I thought that set up the atmosphere so well. You just knew that you were in a poor family. That's uh, a tiny bed. One of the brothers, Judd, is probably well into his 20s or something like mm. that. We're going to follow Billy Moore, who's probably uh, early teens, 13 or 14, maybe even as young as 12, something like that. Yeah, I think I think he's fifty. Do you think he's fifteen? I think he's yeah. yeah. I think he's a scrawny, undernourished fifteen-year-old. Okay, that's probably probably the case. He has a paper route before school, um, and early in the film, he has to walk it because I think his brother took his bike to work. Um, and when he gets to the shop where he picks up his newspapers, there's this question of his past stealing. 
Um, Billy seems to have gotten into trouble in the past, and you know he says, "Oh, I don't do that anymore." As he's stealing a chocolate from the shop, <laughs> and then proceeds to just appropriate milk and various foods while he's on his paper route, um, he just keeps stealing. Um, but you know, you get a sense of this is. An impoverished person just being resourceful. That's what we would say these days, I think. It's not so much stealing as much as it's just doing what you have to do to survive. Um, this is social realism for sure. Um, and I think this is a boy looking for escape, and he sees escape when he spots a kestrel in the sky, and he feels like he can capture it, and he wants to learn how to train it. Um but when he goes to a library to get a card um, so that he can borrow books, he is uh, denied a card. He needs to jump through all these hoops in order to get one. Um, he needs to have a parent sign for it or or someone vouch for it. Now there are all these rules about getting a card. And, and you, you get to sense these the biases against uh, uh, being poor. Um, so yeah. it, he's almost driven directly to steal as a result. He more, he more or less goes from the library to a bookstore and very... Uh, coolly and shrewdly um, proceeds to uh, steal a book on kestrels and raising them and uh, and then goes home and just devours it. This You get a sense of his intelligence because he just wants to read this book. His mother and brother are shouting at each other about what they're doing out um, for Saturday Night Entertainment or whatever it is. Um, and he's just focused on his book and that's all he wants to do. Um, so you just get this this feeling of a message early on that life is just difficult when you're poor. Everything is harder when you don't have money. And I think that's a, a great theme, and it's really well spelled out um, early on. Um, his brother ends up sort of being an antagonist um, even the, after this this night where he stays home reading and his mother and brother oddly end up sort of in the same pub or something like that. I couldn't really sense mm. if there was like a, a community dinner or a, a pub, but there's a band playing and there are... I think it's, it's the Miners Social Club. Is that what it is? is? Yeah, okay. Yeah. And then there there are, yeah, people are drinking, but it's got you've got kids along with parents and grandparents all in the same space just getting pissed. And um, so Judd can see his mother with her new boyfriend, and uh, he's given him some stick as well as getting some stick back. And uh, he ends up so drunk um, that Billy has to undress Judd when he comes into the bedroom in the twin bed. Um, he's just too drunk, so um, Billy's sort of uh, cursing him and, and helping him get his pants off and get into the bed, which is, I guess, again, shows you the life of this kid. He's been reading all night to try and better himself, and then something just drags him down again and takes him out of his slumber and into this world of hard labor, I guess. Um, there's some great descriptions of the characters, it's just these visual descriptions, just seeing people. Um, and for Billy, one thing that I liked early on was he, he he's out walking in the woods, but he's there's a lot of anger and a lot of just... I think just displeasure with the world. So he's chopping at plants and trees and he's yeah. throwing rocks into disturbed water. So this is a kid who sort of loves nature, but he's so frustrated that he's destroying it while he's out there. Um, but he's really, his, his interest in the bird is phenomenal. And the fact that he'll climb to the top of this wall to steal a bird by the end of the opening act um, is quite a... Quite an adventure, and it's quite a, you know, like, uh, it's character description. You really get a sense of who this kid is. He's got a great heart, a great inside, um, but he's dealing with a lot of crap um, in his real world, I guess. The world that this film happens in is absolutely the world of my young childhood. Okay, yeah. Um, uh, so I, I grew up in you know, Nottingham, which is like a Midlands yeah. city, um, and uh, my 
grandparents, my mother's parents, lived in the next village along um, to us, um, which is Cotgrave, uh, which was um, just like the village in this film. It was a colliery village. Um, basically, they had uh, coal mining there and kind of nothing else. That 1960s school that Billy goes to is, you know, is one of a whole um, program of schools that were built you know, in a similar architectural style at the same time. And yeah. my primary school was built in exactly the same style. It had the same windows, the same kind of playground, wow. you know, the same equipment, the same stairs. And it was just the same. Um, and uh, like the, 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 um, the pit social club. Uh, that uh, yeah, that they go to where okay. it's kind of quite cheesy sort of fifties, sixties band playing. Yeah, I mean there was a, yeah there was a kind of a, a colliery miners social club in Cockgrave that I, we we would occasionally go to. Yeah, and it was just like that. I mean, it's, it's absolutely it's just <laughs> like you know a little window into my you know my childhood until I was about kind of nine years old. Yeah. It's just uh, you know absolutely uh, very very um, authentic. Yeah. And that, that seems to be something Ken Loach is very good at doing. And I, I think it's in part because he himself is resourceful. He did not design that room. He did not cast people to be extras and all that. I think he just shoots a scene, uh, basically stealing a scene. He's just probably going into a space where he can do it. He's got his actors and whatnot. But things are like you never get an establishment shot of that room, I don't think. So you're yeah. you're really getting yep. close takes yep. on everything. So I, I feel like he's stealing that whole scene. He probably went to that night of entertainment, that uh, social club night, and he just kind of comes away with pieces of a film that he really needs. So I think that's also really resourceful too. And I, I t I'll talk probably quite a bit about the poverty of Billy in this, but I also think that there's sort of an impoverished uh, layer of Loach's filmmaking quite intentionally. He's not going to make a big budget film. He doesn't want to. He wants to do something that's real. And as a result, this comes across as a really real film. Yeah, um, it's almost like a documentary. Yeah, it is. I'm, I'm going to come super close to calling the cliche squad, but I'm not going to. I'm showing great reservation here. And I'll do it uh, in two different ways. Um, first of all, there's some archetypes archetypes of characters that are really big and very obvious. But I think <laughs> you, as someone who grew up there, probably know about like the teachers, kind yeah. of harsh, um, incompetent or neglectful parents. Those guys are in there as they feel archetypish, but at the same time... You're my expert here. This, these are the real characters. These are real people of England I mean, in the late yeah, 60s. The, the guy who is the... Um... Uh, the, the head teacher is Mr. Grice. Yeah. He was like incredibly strict. And again, you know, I, I had that teacher. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> absolutely. And the, the actor who plays him, I think, was the actual he was, head teacher he at the actual school. The guy was yes. not acting. Yes, exactly. He was not I think he was, you know, caricaturing <laughs> what he felt like you know, a, a, a head teacher should yeah. be like. But yeah. absolutely, that is a completely yeah. believable, um, authentic. Uh, reproduction of that kind yeah. of teaching style and you know this notion that um the way that you get boys to behave is just by telling them that they're useless and they'll amount to nothing again yeah. and again and again until they believe it that's how you control these kind of unruly teenagers yeah that was absolutely the style at the time yeah that and that is why i will not call the, the cliche squad at this time yeah. because it, it just it feels very real but i mean yeah doesn't he punish someone for coughing in an assembly <laughs> He gets another teacher yes. to go pull the kid right out of the room and take him away. Um, woof. So it feels very real. Um, the next thing I'll go to is montage. Um, montage, we joke about it a lot, but 
when it's done properly, it's just very, very good filmmaking. And I think Absolutely, what, what yeah. happens next is that he starts to train this bird. And you see the, the growth of Cass and the growth of, of Billy kind of quickly, um, where he's learning to how to feed him, how to hold him, how to get him to fly on... Um, increasingly longer leads, I guess. Um, and it's done. No dialogue. Some kind of n- n- nice sort of, uh, I don't know, the, the music feels very like uh, pagan, maybe 16th century oh. at times. It's a nice touch. And it's just good filmmaking. So I don't want to call it montage because I think when we joke about montage, it's with generally a cheesy song or a song that sort of talks about what's happening in the film in some way. Um, and it's usually not done so I, with such restraint, I guess. This is just some some longer segments of showing how he trains the bird, which is really impressive. And keeping in mind, he's learning this from a book, and he's doing this on his own. And he's a 15-year-old kid who you would not think would become a, a falconer, but uh, that's exactly what he's doing. So it's, it's really well done. So again, not calling Cliché Squad here. And I think montage is, um, it absolutely does not deserve its reputation. I think it's yeah. one of the fundamental building blocks of cinema, isn't it? It's yeah. absolutely a fundamental part of the art. Um, I think people who complain about montage, it's like someone who enjoys novels complaining about verbs. I mean, it's just, yeah. you know, it's it's such a fundamental, important part of the art form. Absolutely. Well, I think it's, yeah, uh, it, does, I think it means editing. It's montage is French for uh, editing. I yeah, think it's yeah, cutting. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's juxtaposing images. That's yep. what film is, isn't it? Precisely. And so, yeah, it can be done badly in the same way that a novelist can use verbs badly, but it doesn't mean that all verbs are bad. Precisely. But you have seen uh, Team America World Police, I suppose. <laughs> Right, because the montage in that film is is amazing because Fantastic. it's so yeah, self-reflective. Yeah. All right. Um, so then there's a big scene which I'll question a little bit. Um, it's the for me, it's a famous football scene. I guess the only part of this film that I had seen before was the the football scene where. Um, this uh, very self-interested coach gets out there and plays with the boys and bullies them around a little bit. Um, and I think it's there to reinforce this whole idea that adults are more concerned with themselves than they are with the well-being of the youth. <laughs> um, it's a coach or a teacher, and he's he's getting himself involved in the kids' uh, game and athletic development. Uh, Billy's like the last to be chosen for a team. The coach eventually picks him. Um, and it, it's a hilarious scene. There's again great characterizations because some of the boys are just standing around playing hand games and handshakes, and they're dressed in terrible uniforms in some cases, <laughs> but better clothing in other cases. So you you get this wonderful uh, understanding of who everyone is on that field in a very short period of time. Um, but it is a long sequence, and sometimes I wondered why it's in there. But I also wonder it's so great, and I'm not entirely sure, sure why it's so great. So maybe you could pitch in a little bit on this. This is a gym class or something like that. I love this scene, but it's probably 15 minutes or something like that. It's not short. It may well be. It feels like a short film in itself, yeah. doesn't it? You, you could lift that section entirely out of the film and present it on its own yeah. and it would work. Yeah. Um, Brian Glover, who plays the football instructor, yeah. um, I think this was his first role, and he also was a teacher at a local school. Uh-huh. Um, but he, he went on to become a stalwart of the British acting scenes. This yeah. is like his debut. Oh, wow. And you know, then he had like a 30, 40-year career of appearing in everything yeah. in British television and film. Um, he's you know such a natural. He's hilarious, but he kind of plays it you know just just this side of parody mm-hmm. so that it's you know it's very funny and yet also it's kind of just about believable yeah. i think it's you know, a skillful little bit of juggling of yeah. tone and character yeah um you know and it i think it works entirely as a you know, it's almost like it's a sketch or something yeah. like that it's this little self-contained episode yeah i, I can see why ken loach would be um 
you know, disinclined to trim anything out. It works entirely on its own. Yeah, yeah. It is a bit too long, but you know what? I, 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 I have, having seen that sequence several times now. Yeah. You know, it makes me laugh every time. Yeah, it's yeah. hilarious. It's, uh, it's, <laughs> it it's pushing it, the boys out of the way so he can score. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> It's lightning in a bottle. It really is. It's, and I think it's the kind of thing you just have to use it. You've got it on film. Um, you know, it, it's fairly well cut. So there's obviously a lot of footage to work with. Um, and it's just, it's it's great. Um, it's long. And it and I th- as I said, I think the thing that it really expresses is this idea that uh, adults are really interested in themselves and, and not doing such a great job of uh, minding the kids, I guess. Um, yeah. And uh, the... Ultimately, what comes out of it is Billy's forced to take a cold shower after this. He doesn't have a, co- a towel. He didn't have a proper uniform to play um, uh, soccer. And it looked like it was a physical education period or something like that. Um, so he's sort of left in the showers, and the coach even turns off the hot water. So it's a cold shower. You get this idea that he's about to get sick. Um, and even in that situation, he does find a way to escape. It kind of cuts a little bit uh, quickly because he's climbing out this very high window <laughs> to get out of the shower room. Um, and the scene just sort of ends there. But he, he escapes it. And again, it's, it's just this idea that he's able to get out of trouble pretty easily because I think the stakes here are you, you get the feeling that if he gets in trouble one more time with the law, then he's going to be in big, big uh, trouble. So. It's not a great bit of visual storytelling in that scene, just insofar as you know, David Bradley, the lad playing Billy, yeah. Billy um, is just so scrawny. Yeah, he's very scrawny. He? Yeah, yeah. You can kind of see how poorly he has been looked after from you know, how little meat here, there is on him. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, it's telling a really important bit of the story just through, um, you know, the medium of showing us what Doing his body it. looks like. Yeah, and having to sort of undress in front of these other guys, yeah. and he doesn't have any, he doesn't have decent clothes to get into or get out of, and it's, uh, yeah, it's great. There are a lot of great visuals in this film. It's, um, uh, we'll talk about it later probably. Um, it's not a film that I think would get made very easily these days, but um, it's well done. It's good stuff. Um, we cut sort of to Billy. He's in this big assembly scene where I told someone was uh, pulled out for just coughing. So you get the idea of how strict his environment is, how like how captured he is. And uh, it's funny because he captures the kestrel in order to sort of free it. I think that's kind of the idea here. So there's this theme of him just being trapped in society or in school and not having a whole lot of freedom. And while the headmaster's talking, he he kind of notices that Billy's dreamy or something. We get this one dream sequence where he's walking. I think this was a dream sequence. Correct me if I'm wrong, but he's walking and he's showing his bird and he's like an expert in the streets. He's talking to this one man and teaching him about the kestrel and, and how he does his falconry. And it sort of just cuts to the, the headmaster scolding him for falling asleep in during the assembly or something like that. Um, and soon after, you get to this kind of disturbing scene of um, Billy and his, some of his gang being punished for smoking or having cigarettes and the headmaster goes into this long speech and in his own office where he disciplines them and he starts caning them and um Ah. it's pretty it's a pretty rough scene because they're definitely getting punished and i love that the fear on the youngest boy who they sort of hidden the cigarettes on his person (laughs) he just he's the last one to get caned he's it's acting i guess but maybe the kid was just there and he was just doing it you know he he probably had lived that experience so he (laughs) The expressions on his face as he's the last one to get caned, seeing everyone else get hit uh, first. Really, really impressive uh, <laughs> bit of acting there. Um, Billy gets a little celebration in his classroom when he sort of comes under the microscope and has to explain his falconry to the class. And he's really good at communicating. He has to get up in front of the class, and kids are asking him questions, and the teacher shows a lot of um, 
interest in him as well and in the falconry. And Billy says this one thing in front of the class, which I think is really uh, poignant. He says, um, she's done me a favor letting me sit her, sit her to watch her. So he's talking about cats mm. um, and just having the bird and, and witnessing her has done something for his soul. And I think that was like a very, very um, poignant moment that he had this one success in the classroom because there's not a lot of great stuff that happens in his life otherwise. So to get recognized for his intelligence and his expertise in something I think is really valuable. Um, Ends up getting in a fight in a coal pile outside. I don't know if you... Did you have coal piles outside your school? (laughs) Yeah, I don't think we went that far. It's just like, it's strange. I don't know whether it's like... I don't know whether that is what's going to fuel the... The heaters, the like the boiler yeah. for the yeah. for the school, I'm yeah, guessing. But yeah. yeah, it does seem seem a bit crazy to keep it as just this <laughs> massive pile of coal outside the building. And he's so I don't remember that when I was a boy, but I wouldn't put it past the local authority. Yeah. His buddies who I thought were his buddies, McDowell is this one character, um, who's teasing me in particular, and this is one of the guys he'd just been punished with uh before. Um there's sort of this rumor going around that Judd isn't his brother, and he, Billy gets into a fight, I guess, on family honor. Um, and he and McDowell um, come to blows, and they're fighting in this coal pile, and they're getting really, really dirty. Um, and a little later on, it seems like uh, McDowell was one of these guys who he'd fallen in with earlier, and they were buddies, and that's when he was getting in trouble. So I think Billy's – you get this idea that Billy's trying to change, even though he still has to steal the odd candy bar or a bottle of milk or something. He's trying to change and not hang out with those guys and – I think that sort of represents an end to his relationship um, with that group of friends. Um, And I think that sort of takes us to the end of, like, the second act of the film. And again, I'll come back briefly to that, the symbolism of trapping and imprisoning this hawk, um, because he has sort of been trapped. And like the hawk, kind of semi-orphaned. There's no father figure He's disappeared. Uh, when he's trying to get that library card, uh, the librarian asks, what about your father? Can he come in? He said, no, he's gone. Uh, you know, it's kind of, again, this, we're getting great information on something as trivial as, as getting a library card. You realize yeah. he's got no father figure in his life. Um, and also some other great little thematic things that are just natural. Um, killing smaller birds for food to feed a bigger one. And it, <laughs> what really occurred yeah. to me is that this film is about the food chain, and I'm talking about the human food chain uh, yeah. when I say that. And uh, again, Loach is just doing it brilliantly. Um, so Billy needs um, – he's supposed to place a bet. He goes back home. He's supposed to place a bet on some horses for Judd. It took me a while to figure this out because it does play out very naturally. Um, but he elects not to. He sort of goes into the betting house and gets some advice from this old guy who says, no, it's not a good bet. So he takes Judd's money. Ooh, bad idea. And he buys <laughs> fish and chips, chips. And he's spending the money. Yes. He, wants, he wants to get some meat for the bird, too. Uh, Judd ends up pissed, very upset. He's going to hunt him down at school. Um Meanwhile, the teacher also visits Billy to see Kess. And this was an interesting scene. I think what the de- director is trying to do is introduce some mystery here. It's it's like a potentially creepy scene because the teacher goes, goes to visit him in the field when he's training Kess. But he also visits Billy back in the little shack where Kess lives. And I didn't know if the teacher was going to steal the bird or if the teacher was interested in Billy sexually. It's a really, I felt wrong-footed as an audience member because I didn't know what was going to happen. So I thought that was clever if that's what was going on there. Um, Or it's just this wonderful moment where a teacher, an adult, is showing interest in Billy as a kid and in his hobbies. And he's just interested in falconry and interested in what Billy's doing. So it's a really interesting scene because I just didn't know what to make of it. Um, 
But meanwhile, like Judd is on the lookout for Billy. He's trying to find him at school. Billy's hiding in school. He ends up at this this scene I didn't understand quite as well, but he was ends up at a jobs and employment agency. Um, and it's another sort of um, um, interaction with authority or officialdom and uh, the importance of formality. He doesn't knock on the door and wait as he's supposed to, so the official gets all mad at him. And so it looks like he's going to get placed for a job or some kind of internship or whatever, and the, 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 the man, the official, sort of points him obviously towards manual labor in the mines. Like, that's your future, buddy. You don't you forget yeah. about office or university or anything uh, like that, anything white-collar, you're going to be in the mines. And, you know, wisely, Billy just says, no, it's off. <laughs> that's not for me. <laughs> Uh, he doesn't say that because that's a bad word, and we don't do that because Spotify catches those. <laughs> Gets back home. Kess is gone. Uh, Judd ugh, kills Kess to get revenge on Billy. Yeah, it's really quite sick. Um, so the then the, the household is just back into uh, this dysfunctionality with the mother and Judd screaming at each other, but she's not actually very happy with Billy either. And Billy buries Kess, and the film is just kind of over. It's Billy burying his dreams. He's just gone out in the backyard yeah. somewhere, dug a hole, stuck the bird in the ground. I got to ask you, is that a real bird, or was that, did they make a dead bird? What do you think? This is 1969. Uh, so I, I read up on this, and, and it was a real dead bird. Okay. Um, apparently, Ken Loach told um, David Bradley, yeah. uh, the actor, that uh, they would have to kill the bird at the end for that scene. Yeah. So his his tears in the scene are real. Oh, he really believes that they've killed the bird. Yeah. And it's only after they filmed the scene that Ken Loach told him, actually, no, that was another bird which died of old age. Oh, and good. The bird is still fine. Oh, God, thank you. Um, so, uh, so, but yeah, it is a real bird that he buries. I got, um, yeah, I mean, oh my God, that is heartbreaking, though, yeah, isn't yeah. it? I did a little calculation about the the bet that he misses out on. Yeah, because it's, I think it's sixteen pounds. Yep. Yeah. is the amount um, that Judd was expecting to make, and you know, in modern money, that is one hundred and eighty-seven pounds Oof. UK now. Okay. So that's like what is that's like two hundred and twenty bucks or something like that. Yeah, and it's you know it's interesting that you know well, that is the price of of killing a bird then. Yeah. He's saying you're in a position where you know, yeah, that two hundred pounds today is you will know, make an enormous difference. For, yeah, for a coal miner, for sure. And there's yeah. a, there's really only one scene of Judd sort of going into the coal mine, but it's a pretty grim scene. It looks like a very grim lifestyle. And what is it? Six pounds that he was going to bet? That's what I thought I heard. And it would have uh, been sixteen. Yeah, quite it... possibly. It might have been one pound. And okay. He got, he hoping to get sixteen back. Something okay. like that. Yeah. Um. That. Uh, the, uh, the work down the mines was yeah. notoriously very, very well paid. Oh, so it yeah. It was you know, oh. extremely unpleasant, unskilled, yeah. horrible work, but you know, very well paid. Yeah. Some without qualifications. Sure. This was um, a, you know, a, a surefire route to you know, a good income. Yeah. They used to be, when I grew up in Nottingham, they used to be like a standard joke, um, which was, I don't know whether this would translate these days or not, which was uh, the, the, the front of the Nottingham Evening Post, that like the local newspaper would have this headline, you would, people, the joke was, well, have you seen the headline on the Nottingham Evening Post? It's uh, minor marries commoner, is the joke. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you know, back in the like, you know, the yeah. late 70s or whatever, that was a mildly amusing joke. Um, the, interesting, your uh, take on the good teacher. It's Mr. Farthing yeah. you know, who comes and sits with him and looks at the books. It, it never occurred to me that he may have any kind of unsavory interest yeah. in, in Billy. It always struck me that he was just, he was like the good teacher. Yeah. He was actually, you know, noticing the kids and 
you know, doing his job and, and going above and beyond. He is played by Colin Welland. Yeah. Um, who went on to write Chariots of Fire. That's it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, who's another one of those actors who you know, wasn't particularly well known at the time that Kez went out, went out and then was like a stalwart of UK television yep. and, and um, movies and yeah, did lots and lots of work. You know, well-known had a big uh, career, yeah. British actors. A lot of these people you know, getting their kind of early gigs or their start in this movie. Yeah. Well, and w- with good reason. I mean, they got noticed because it's a great film. It is a great film. And it's still a great film. One question I have to ask yeah. you. Um, did you have to watch this film with subtitles? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, my God. I tried the first few minutes without. Right. And, well done. uh I was so happy to get subtitles, i got to say, because I knew it was going to be a great film and I knew it was going to be hard to understand, but I started without and it was not long before I had the subtitles on, yeah. But what about you? I mean, well, that's my yeah, question for I'm, you, really. Yeah, no, I mean, I didn't, didn't have to have subtitles, but I can utterly appreciate, I mean, even for somebody who, um, you know, so I you know, grew up in the Midlands and, yeah. um, you know, this film is set in South Yorkshire, so, you know, not a million miles away, but further north than where I grew up. Yeah. Um, but I can imagine even somebody who um, has lived all their life in the south of the UK might find it a little bit difficult to follow what they say, let alone somebody who lives in another country. Yeah, yeah. So I, I've written here in my notes here, it's a simple story in a language that's hard to understand. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Well, and it's it's the story is easy to understand because it's just it's great visual storytelling for the most part. Um, it helps to know what's going on in the dialogue because you definitely pick up some things. But you know, there are lots of Englishes, you know, it's, and there's not just one or two Englishes. So it's yeah. going to change from one region of a country to another. And yeah, there were a lot of, lot of, th- lot of, I heard now it, N-O-W-T a lot. Like, what is that? And um, <laughs> so that is, that is word for nothing. Yeah, nothing. It means nothing. Not, yeah, yeah. Not. <laughs> not. It not. was, uh, and it was interesting because the, you know, it was written more or less as, there were still some things that I didn't understand because they were written exactly as <laughs> they were pronounced. So it didn't always help, um, but for the most part, it, it definitely made it a lot easier. Yeah, I, lo- I think you could you could largely understand this film with the sound completely off, yeah, couldn't you? Exactly. Yeah, you don't need to hear anything at all. But I mean, it, again, it's uh, it's character description to have them speaking as they would in that school in that part of the country at that in you know fifty five years ago or wherever that is. So I mean, I think it has to be delivered like that for sure. Makes it harder for someone you know now half century later to to understand it but um i met do you, does the accent in that area very similar now i think it, it is absolutely yeah, yeah i right? think people still absolutely talk yeah. exactly like that now i don't think that's particularly changed yeah i fa- i think there's an awful lot of things that haven't changed about this film i mean it's i uh, it did strike me i've already seen this film i think maybe twice before before seeing it again yeah. this time round it's still great it's a yeah. great piece of entertainment yeah, it it's you know it's really you know emotionally devastating it still feels very very fresh and very relevant and very alive it's number 7 by the way i'm sure you probably saw this number 7 in the bfi top mm. 100 british films of all time wow and absolutely deserves its place yeah. i think but it's oh, it's a film about hopelessness largely isn't it yeah. like, hopelessness of you know the life that these boys have and have to look forward to um, in this kind of industrialized, declining uh, north part of the country, um, and uh, it's still relevant today because I think I'm not sure whether they specifically say this in the film or not. But at the time, um, prevalent in the north, there was this exam, the eleven plus. I don't know whether you've heard this. So um, you know, all the children who are aged 
uh, kind of 10 and 11, I think, um, would sit and sit this exam and the top 10% would go to a selective school, to go to a grammar school, and they would be basically peeled off from the others and sent to, to be um, the kids who would go on to have the middle class jobs. And they would go on to become the accountants and the lawyers and the business people. And the remaining 90% were effectively just condemned to these unskilled, dangerous jobs, which had to be done by somebody. Um, and so, you know, at this age of 10 or 11, that's it. Your whole future life was mapped out for you. you. You've been told by the, yeah, by the educational authority. Yes, not for you, son. Yeah, you'll get down pit and yep. you'll enjoy it. Um, and in many parts of the country, there is still this two-tier education system. That, and I says it's a three-tier education system because people who are wealthy will send their children to a private school. So yeah. there's kind of three tiers. Um, there are some bits of the country where the 11 plus is still very prevalent and somewhere it does not happen. Yeah. But um, it still happens in some places. Um, well, it's, it, you know, kind, it's kind of it's the enemy of social mobility. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that it, ha it happens in this film. That whole scene about, I'll put it in quotation marks, the employment agency um, <laughs> is basically just a ruse to point him towards the mines. Right. So it definitely happens yeah, there absolutely. without the exam. It's like, oh, yeah, we're going to look for a job for you. But you should really think about going down into the mines. <laughs> um yeah so I, yeah I, yeah i think it's relevant for sure on so many levels but that that's interesting to hear that that's still going on and then the other kind of shocking thing about the film is the way that it kind of normalizes abuse because you know billy is sort of, he's kind of um he's physically abused isn't he he's yeah. emotionally abused mm -hmm. he's economically abused he's yeah. beaten up by his brothers you know his mother is uninterested in him yeah. he's bullied at school you know there is one teacher who takes an interest in him yeah but even that one teacher isn't enough to save him from the you know, from the employment agency yeah. um you know he's the world has kind of got it in from him from every angle and there's no you know there isn't a happy ending and there isn't a you know, light at the end of the tunnel yeah i hear you i hear you uh definitely um and these are these seem to be uh loach's themes and ideas like um he he definitely i love his politics i love his philosophy he's very leftist and i love the fact that um it, the first credit is this film was made by and he's got this group this sort of collective yeah. idea uh so people aren't acknowledged necessarily for the exact role they they performed on a film but it's actually a group activity um and i, I think you know this is a social realist film that he has sort of made in one form or another for 50-something years now. Um, and I've got to go back and look at him more closely because I and it, we, I thought he spoke when we were at film school or that we watched an interview or something. Oh, I can't remember. So long yeah. ago now, but I definitely remember getting exposed to him there and not enjoying all the films because I'm not a massive social realism fan by any means. And I just kind of like more more like tightly told stories. And um, this is a little loose, and that's fine because he's, he's making it in, in such a loose fashion. Um, and I, again, I kind of wonder if these films can be made today or who's making these. They're, they're out there somewhere, but um, there aren't a lot of like really – sort of lefty social realist things going on in cinema because they don't make money. And Loach doesn't care if he makes money, I don't think. I and mean, he just wants to tell these yeah. stories about real people yep. and there's something really admirable about him. He's not he's not getting any younger, is he? I don't know how many more films he's got in it. No, no, I think... Well, as a matter of fact, one of the most recent films is actually about him uh, making films, about him as a filmmaker. So there's a documentary about him which looks kind of interesting. Um, and I might actually just see that because I think that would be a great reintroduction to him. Um, I have one question for you um, yeah. about school. 
Um, they seem, for the longest time, I thought Billy's name was just Casper because they're always calling him by his last name. So I'm, I'm wondering, wow. like, when you were in school, did they just say, Rosica? They did. They were just call, so the teachers were just calling you by your last name? Absolutely. And, yep. and not yep. Mr. Rosica, just... <laughs> just Rosica, yeah. Jeez. But if, and if you were, if you were like, uh, one of a pair of brothers, then you would be Rosica Minor, if oh. you were, like, the younger brother as well. Oh, <laughs> So, um, yeah, absolutely. That's yeah, that's taken straight from life. And you think, I hope that doesn't still happen. Okay, yeah, the yeah. only people who call you by your first name would be either, um, either the, you know the the trendy chummy teachers once you're a bit higher up the school, yeah, or your close friends, your friends. Okay, but even even you know. Uh, uh, even most of your friends will call you by your surname as well, because that was, you know, that's what everybody said. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Very real, then. Very real, this film. Very um, real. I loved yeah. it. I thought it was great. I knew it was going to be great. 100% on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. No surprise. It's a classic. I, mean, I had seen the soccer scene at least once or twice, and I don't know. I had sort of either forgotten the rest of the film or ignored it. Um, I would like two th- massive. Are we allowed to say thumbs up or is that trademarked or something? There's just a. <laughs> someone I, else says that, don't yeah. they? Someone else says someone that. Someone else says that. I don't know. Two two positive feelings for this film. Yeah, two two reels. <laughs> two, two reels. Positive, reels. Two reels going the same way. Yes. <laughs> I try to. I bring the bring the bring the two films together. They have got a lot in common, yeah. haven't they? These oh, two. Oh, for sure. Now, you get a similar. Even though you know they are about eras which are 30 years apart and they've been made 50 years apart you get a pretty similar picture of the uk schooling system from both of these yeah, films i think definitely don't you? that it's kind of you know largely underfunded that kids succeed kind of despite the education system rather than because of it yeah and you know and they both have these themes of kind of crushed ambitions don't they mm-hmm. in different ways um uh, whether whether in the first film brandon's ambitions are crushed by the school system or by himself um, is another question but yeah certainly Billy and Kez is, is crushed by those around him yeah, doing th- his very best to spread his wings and having them clipped at every yeah. point and there are these external forces in both places in both films that uh, sort of limit or hamper uh, the protagonists for sure and you know Billy's trying to escape just as well as um, Brandon's trying to escape um and that because because he's gone through that school twice in my old school, you sort of get three different generations of <laughs> the same. Yeah, you're right. External yeah, forces 60s, at the seventies and the nineties. Yeah, so you get the sixties, eighties, and nineties. Yeah, um, yeah, and I think that's yeah, there's lots of freedom, like getting getting out of the the bureaucracy of it. Because Brandon is held back by this rule that you can't go to med school after you're thirty or something like that, right? Yeah, to, which I think is not true. Yeah, but. and so but they they both sort of feel these sort of um, institutional yeah. forces against them as well as um, economic forces. Good films. Both good films. Yeah. Boy, I'm going to give... Plus ça change, yeah. as we say. Yes. Yeah. What changes? Good. Well, yeah, both great films. We just have enough time to talk about what else has been playing at this theatre. Well, have you seen anything else good lately? Well, I have. Um, I wouldn't call it a film exactly, but uh, <laughs> World Cup Fever still oh. just has me by the, I don't know, by the <laughs> noggin or something like that, by the ball. No, ball. No. Okay, I won't say anything. Um, I'm really, really invested in the World Cup, probably way too much, and uh, 
but I watched a Netflix documentary, four parts, called FIFA Uncovered, I think it was. Oh. Um, and I thought it was very good. It came out right in time for the World Cup. So I think the first week of the World Cup, um, I watched that probably in three or four nights, just kind of one episode after the next. And uh, it's good. It was it was good in part because I knew a lot of the story, but was reminded, and it needed to be reminded. And then you get some juicy details about just how nefarious the entire organization is, and um, how the thing that strikes me is how little we're getting out of, at least on American television, we're not getting much of like the stuff on the ground in in Qatar at all. I mean, I'm not really seeing early on there were problems yeah. with the tickets and all that, but I'm just curious about all the stuff that they built, the transportation. Are the workers actually going to games, or are they just sort of not being fed in their little container units out on the outskirts of the country yeah. and not working at all? Are they hiding them right now? And it just I think we're not getting very much information, and that's just classic FIFA, and I think the, the documentary brings that out really, really well. So um, I haven't seen any other films the last couple of weeks, but I did watch all four of those hours, so... And would yeah. recommend it. I definitely I'm recommend that. FIFA can still continue to function when it seems that everybody in the world and their mother knows that they are utterly corrupt. It's surprising that they're still able to to turn up for work on the you know, at nine o'clock every morning. Um, I've uh, I've also been watching something which is not a film. I have been. I'm not sure whether I should say watching or playing Immortality. So uh, oh. Netflix have um, uh, made this kind of new move to try and sort of broaden their offering. Mm-hmm encourage people to keep their subscriptions so now they're also doing netflix games uh none of which i've particularly looked at until uh this one which i think has come out on netflix last week or two um immortality is a game uh, where you're given just a whole bunch of apparently random clips from three different fictional films one made in 1969 one made in the early 70s and one made in 1999 something like that all of which star the same actor uh, this kind of same woman um, who you know, looks very similar in the three films, even though they're over a wide range of time. Mm. And uh, and it's not entirely clear what you're supposed to do with the clips. Um, you just kind of flick your way through them and gradually try and put together in part what the plots of the three films were, but also in part uncovering another mystery about you know, what really happened to this woman Um you know, how come she always looks the same in all of her films, even though they're 30 years apart? You know, there's some kind of supernatural element going on there. Huh. Um, to start with, I was a little bit sceptical um, because uh, these three um, sort of snippeted films are, uh, none of them is very good. Uh, they're kind of not fantastically well acted and they're a little bit hokey and a little bit cheesy. And I was thinking, what I'm doing is I'm watching you know, three not very good films that have been cut up into tiny pieces. Yeah. But um, now that I've been looking at it for over an hour or so, I've started to spot little patterns and it's kind of drilling its way into my head. So uh-huh. actually finding it quite interesting. Ah. Um, so it's something that you have to download on your phone. You can't play it on the telly. Oh. You have to have to have a mega download on your phone and then it presents you with like clips that you have to your way backwards and forwards through huh. so interesting experiment maybe after i've finished it i'll tell you whether it was worth it yeah yeah it sounds like a bit of recycling really they're taking old material and trying to <laughs> yes i think here it's it's like it, the old material has been made anew for the so it's like yeah. it's they pretend old films yeah, yeah exactly they have shot newly, but it's yeah Ooh. it's um yeah, interesting experiment anyway. So we'll see, we'll see, we'll see what comes And out. I wonder if it, it, was, it was because someone was just making crappy films and they decided, oh, we, we paid money for these crappy films. We have to <laughs> repurpose them somehow. Let's cut our losses. 
Nice if we chop them into little pieces, nobody will notice how bad they are. Keep us updated, because it sounds like it could be a new low for Netflix, but uh, <laughs> the, the verdict is still out, I guess. Yes. Netflix, who are the champion of lows. <laughs> right, well, that has been the Two Real Cinema Club. Yeah. Um, it's going to be a Christmas special next time. Yes, I'm looking yes, forward so, uh, to it. Join us for Christmas, but until then, thank you for joining us. Um, leave a review if you can. Yeah. And we'll see you next time. Enjoy your TRCC jumpers, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>